You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. do welcome you if you are a visitor to St. Peter's and if you've got any questions or, or comments or you hear about speaking to so-and-so and so-and-so and you don't know who they are, we've got a table at the back that's uh, Bernard Manns and uh, as you get tea and coffee at the end, there's information and you've, you can ask any questions uh, you want then. Um, Tim informed me about why he knows the catechism. This is a great incentive. His parents wouldn't give him a driving license until he learned it. <laughs> so I think that's great. So uh, there's, uh, uh, there are so many ways you can think about that one. You know, uh, you're not allowed to go out with somebody until you've learned the catechism. That would be a pretty good incentive too. There's, um, I just thought that was fantastic. Imagine that you are a doctor in Syria and you're a Christian. Uh, you're a minority, but you've been protected and you've worshipped in freedom. And then this civil war starts and you find that your town is bombed and gassed, that your church is destroyed. You've heard of people near you who have been killed, people in your community, women who've been raped and so on. You say, I've got to get out of here and you flee. You pay a crook, a criminal, a lot of money, everything that you can to smuggle you in a boat. What he didn't tell you, there's going to be 200 people in that boat, boat built for 20 people. And your boat capsizes as you cross the Mediterranean. You're separated from your family. You don't know if they're alive or dead. You walk and eventually arrive in Hungary, and you are in a, basically, a tented village. And you wonder, you're a Christian. How can God let this happen to his people? Let's read Isaiah 45, because this is a situation where God's people many years ago, were in a very similar scenario. This is what the Lord says, Isaiah 45 is on page 731. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. 
Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. In the light of world circumstances, local circumstances, church circumstances, maybe your personal circumstances, how can you believe in the goodness and power of God? Well, these verses tell us some amazing things about why we can believe in the power and goodness of God. They tell us about God's ways. I'm just going to mention them and you can apply them to yourself as you go along. First of all, God's ways are unexpected. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Now, you and I, we don't, we're not used to this language. But if we were, we would be utterly shocked by this language. Because the anointed is the Messiah, the Christ. But God's anointed here is Assad. God's anointed is a heathen king who is being used for God's purposes. God's people could have accepted that the powers that exist exist for good. But to call Cyrus the Lord's anointed was a, a, a deeply and deliberately disturbing thing. This is the title of the Davidic king. And as far as God's people are concerned, it's all been blown up. It's all been destroyed. And God is saying this heathen king is the Davidic king, whilst the real Davidic king has gone. God's ways are unexpected. And I know that we know that, and I know, like many things that we, can, we know, it can become a truism. But please hold on to it. You see, the trouble that you and I have is we like to be in control, and we also like to understand, and to know is to control. And so we pray for God to bless, and we pray for God to work, and we pray for God to be a blessing in this church or in this nation or in our families. But in our heads, we've got it worked out as to how God is going to bless. We know what we mean. It's just we're telling God what he should be doing. And if we plead for God to bless, God will bless. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. God answers the prayers of his people, but he does so sometimes in ways that are very unexpected Secondly, God's ways have a purpose. Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, uh, Romans 8 tells us all things work together for the good. They are for God's people. Now in verse 4, he talks about this is for the sake of Jacob, my servant. God is saying, I am allowing you, Cyrus, to capture Israel, to destroy Jerusalem for the sake of my people. Now, if you're one of God's people, you're going to look and you're going to say, no, how is that possible? That cannot be right. And yet, there is a depth here that you and I have to grasp. Otherwise, when we face the deep, when we face difficulties and troubles that are beyond our shallow understanding, we will be utterly overwhelmed unless undergirding it all is no matter what the circumstances, we absolutely believe that God works all things for the good of those who love him. God's ways have a purpose. And God's ways also are his self-revelation. Look at verse 6. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. People may know. 
Cyrus, you will know, though you do not acknowledge me. That's what it says. Verse 5, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. The Lord has put before Cyrus all the evidence before him to make such knowledge possible. And yet Cyrus, as far as we know, we have an inscription from one of Cyrus's um, victories in which he acknowledges Barduk, Marduk, rather, the Babylonian god. And what Cyrus tended to do is every nation he went to, he was quite a smart politician, he would just take their god, inverted commas, their idols, and say, well, it was your, it was your god that sent me. Now, here's the interesting thing. Nowhere do we have any record of Cyrus acknowledging the God who did anoint him and the God who did send him. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 5. Apart from me, there is no God. And yet Cyrus said, well, there are many other gods. And he put himself almost above them. Why did God let this happen to God's people. He tells us himself, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. That does seem a strange statement on one level, and it's also a hard providence in this. If we accept that the scripture is true, and I absolutely do, What God is saying is, what is of primary importance is not whether you get what you prayed for, but that men may know who I am. And when you pray, I remember being in a prayer meeting as a very, very, I'd just become a Christian, a very young Christian. And I remember somebody in that prayer meeting praying, very young, another very young Christian, Lord, we want you to bless this outreach that we're doing, and we don't care what happens as long as you bless. And that prayer was interrupted by an older, wiser teacher who actually said, if you mean that, you will experience the most awesome answer to prayer, but the most incredible pain. And we did. For a month, we went through just the most surreal and one of, one, of the mo- one of the most surreal and bizarre experiences I've ever had in my life. And yet at the end of that month, more than 50 of my classmates or schoolmates profess faith in Christ. And many of them are still going strong. The teacher said to me, I doubt you'll ever pray that prayer again. And I said, yeah, you're right. It's a hard prayer to pray when you know God takes you seriously. God's ways are his self-revelation. You know, in all the trouble that's in the world and all the difficulty, maybe one of the ways that we can help or or help us grasp and understand is that God is showing us what it's like when we reject Him, when humanity turns away from Him. Maybe He's showing us that there are no Lord apart from Him. Verse 7, God is sovereign. God's ways are unexpected. God's ways have a purpose. God's ways are his self-revelation. Verse 7, God is sovereign. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. Now, one of the older translations talks about I create evil. That is a bad translation. And the reason for that is this. 
It's not talking about moral evil. It's talking about situations which are in and of themselves not good. They, an earthquake is not good. Um, war is not good. But what is, being, what is saying is this. Not that God is the author of evil, although he permits it. But that even when he permits it, that evil can work out for good. I think the idea here is God saying to his people, I want you to trust me and I want you to have peace in the midst of disaster because the disaster hasn't taken me by surprise. In fact, I, the Lord, form the light, create darkness. I bring prosperity. I create disaster. He's saying all day and all night, all circumstances, all experiences, none are out with my control. And if I'm that Syrian doctor, by the way, in that camp worrying about my family, worrying about my future, thinking about what's going to happen, the only thing that's going to bring me comfort is that God actually knows and God actually cares. Because he goes on verse 8 here, to say God's ways are to vindicate the right. God's ways are sovereign. You heavens above rain down righteousness. That's where the caring comes in. The danger is if you took, say, verse 7 and said, I form the light and create darkness, you have God like some kind of giant computer programmer saying, well, there's the bad guys, there's the good guys, and we'll move them around here and we'll do this. Basically, God playing war games or God playing an ultimate sim city or something along those lines. And Verse 8 completely destroys that because it says that God's purposes are to bring righteousness. Let there be right. Let there be justice. Let there be righteousness. I think what's really in view here, and as we go through to the end of Isaiah, you'll see it more and more, is this idea of the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Um, Without making any political comment, though it is utterly extraordinary that... uh, an old-style, bicycle-riding, middle-class, Marxist, Trotskyist has just been elected leader of the Labour Party. And to me, when I listen to Jeremy Corbyn, he sounds an absolutely lovely guy. And unlike many of our politicians, he sounds honest. And he just, you know, there are so many different things. But what, what worries me enormously is people, I heard it on the radio yesterday, someone saying, he's being treated like the Messiah, no, he's not. He's, he kinda, he's a guy who keeps a, you know, a cabbage patch in, a, in an allotment, cycles a bike, and would have been at your university Trotskyist society. Sadly, these seem to no longer exist. If you want to start one up in Dundee University, go for it. Owen Daly will tell you how. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's, and, and, and people are going, oh, everything's going to change. Everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be great. And the answer is, no, it's not. It's not. And it's not going to be wonderful whatever the politician or leader is because human beings keep mucking things up. And because there's always going to be abuse and violence and, and pornography and greed and selfishness and manipulation. There's always going to be the poor. There's always going to be the rich and powerful. And there's always going to be the oppressed. And the world says, suck it up and see or puts its faith in false messiahs. 
But the Christian church, you know what we do sometimes? Sometimes I think we put our heads down and we forget what God has promised, that, it, that he will rain down righteousness. I, the Lord, have created it, he says. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. And what's here is a God who is enthusiastic about righteousness and enthusiastic about what is going to happen. And we, his people, are bowed down and saying, oh, no, here we go again. Oh, no, this is terrible. Oh, no. And instead, in the midst of the sorrow and in the midst of the suffering and in the midst of the pain, we should be saying, righteousness will reign. Righteousness will reign. God will put all things right. The Lord's ways. Now, that brings us on to our response. Verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or a reward, says the Lord Almighty." Now, here's what I think this passage is teaching us. And I, I really, if you're a Christian, I want you to listen to this. It's teaching us that God's people are sometimes far too small-minded, far too narrow-minded. In this sense, in that our narrowness of vision harms us. As I had, had earlier said in chapter 29, verse 15, Ha! Huh. You who hide a plan too deep for the Lord, whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of the one who formed it, he has no understanding? Do you understand how stupid it is and how easily we do it that sometimes we can sit in church, sometimes we can say the words, we can sing the songs, we can read the Bible, we can preach the word, and then we go home and in our own minds, and in our own hearts, or even in our own actions, we utterly betray what we say, or preach, or sing. And we think, nobody knows. Nobody knows. God knows. God knows. Who do you think you are, he says. You turn things upside down. My plan is too deep. I'll hide it from the Lord. You can't do that. And sometimes in our thinking, it's not just that we're hypocritical, but in our thinking, we don't have a big enough vision to see the glory of God in his world. And we're reduced to our own wee world, which at times is full of joy and laughter, and at other times is full of despair. And either of those could destroy us if we don't have the bigger picture. What God is saying to his people here is, you're questioning me, you're saying, I'm getting it wrong. You're saying you could do a better job. So we have our questions. Quarreling with the maker is how it's described. There is nothing wrong with asking questions. There is something wrong with questioning in the way which is really accusatory. And when they question, things seem to get worse. Now, the, the two illustrations that are used here 
or the two examples are the pot questioning the potter. And, and it's a ridiculous illustration because it's saying, it's the pot going to the potter. Well, I wonder if the potter has any hands. Well, how do you think you were made? Of course the potter has hands. Paul uses this in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? Let me tell you that I think the most difficult teaching for most of us here to accept is simply this one, that we don't make ourselves. We live in a culture in which we're self-made people. We did well in our exams. We've done well in that competition. We've done well in, that, uh, in our choice of partner. And when we think like that and we see someone down in the gutter, we think, well, they deserve it because they obviously haven't done well. But here's what God says. He says, I make you and I unmake you. And we find that really hard. We, we, we want to go to God and say, well, look, if I was in charge, and God says, but you're not. You're not in charge. And you don't know. And he uses another even more ridiculous illustration, which doesn't come across well in the English, but it's this idea of the child does not say to the parent, what have you brought forth? And I'm sure some of you can imagine um, your children going, complaining, or if you have children, or maybe you've even said this, you know, your parents. It's interesting in, in the debate that was had on euthanasia, people were talking about, I have the right to choose when I die and how I die. No, you don't. That's the big doctrine that people go on about. Euthanasia is not about alleviating suffering. Euthanasia is about human beings saying, we're in charge. And God says, no, you're not. And when you think about it, think of the other end of life. (laughs) Did you decide? Well, I think I'll be born. And I think I'll have that man from my father and that man from my mother. And I think I'll be born at that. Oh, I've had enough in here. I'm coming out. No, you didn't. Of course you didn't. None of us got to choose our parents, and none of us got to choose the date of our birth, and none of us gets to choose the date of our death. Now, we live in a culture which is trying to overcome that, and this is seriously is about humanity rebelling against God, where we say, we don't want that child, so we'll kill it. Or that older person who's in suffering, get rid of them. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When someone is elderly and is in severe pain and is suffering, that you, you, you want to do the absolute utmost you can to help alleviate that suffering. But euthanasia is not primarily about that. Euthanasia is about getting rid of people or people themselves saying, I, wanna, I don't want to be a burden. Do you know in the state of Oregon, 75% of the people who said, who applied for assisted suicide, their reason was they didn't want to be a burden to people. Well, God says, you don't. The child does not say to the parent. And the language here is of in the womb. It's the child in the womb saying to the parents, what are you going to do? What are you going to bring forth? I mean, it's utterly ludicrous to even think like that. And here's why. Firstly, of course, the child in the womb doesn't have the intellectual capacity to work through concepts like that or to ask things like that. And we're like children in the womb. We do not have the capacity to go to God and say, look, what are you doing? Because we know so little. The second thing is just simply this. The child in the womb, even if they could conceive that they were a child in the womb, 
doesn't know what they're going to be. They don't know. And you and I don't know what we are going to be, and we don't know how God is going to work things out. We don't know the end result. What we are doing is we are complaining about the finished product when we don't know what the finished product is. The omnipotent and omniscient Lord has promised to his people that he's going to bring forth truth and peace and righteousness. And what do God's people do? They say, yeah, really? Are you really going to do that? And God says, yes, yes, and yes. Over and over, again, again, and again, this is what I am going to do. And you say, well, I don't see it. Yes, that's because you're in the womb. Of course you don't see it. You see, God's answer is that he is the creator, not just in the sense of setting things going, but also in terms of providentially ruling. And if he decides to raise up Cyrus, that's the end of the discussion. The Lord will raise up Cyrus in his righteousness, and the Lord will allow things to happen to us that he still has power over. You see, God knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to have Cyrus take the people back to Jerusalem. Now, I hope you're with me so far. I want to finish this by um, saying that there's something missing here. Even having said all of that, there's something missing. There's something that doesn't make sense and something that's not really adequate and something that, that would leave you feeling, yeah, it's great to believe in the sovereignty of God and the power of God and righteousness reigning and so on, but what's missing? We need to move beyond theologizing, if you like, to trusting. Acts 9.10, now there's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a division, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke on your name. In other words, God, do you know what you're doing? This guy's crazy. This guy hates Christians. You're wanting to send me, a leading Christian, to his house. And he's been given orders to capture and kill people like me. What are you doing? The Lord said to him, go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Please grasp this. Whatever circumstance you are facing, you are not in control. God is, and he's not capricious, and he's not evil. Go back to verse 3. It says there, I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden treasures in the secret places. Cyrus went to Babylon. I think this prophecy, there's some evidence that this prophecy influenced his behavior, that he understood this as if he dug deep in the dungeons, he would discover treasures, and he actually did. But I think for us, there's a much clearer meaning, and it's simply this. In the midst of the darkness of the most dark circumstances, God brings treasures to his people. God brings his word. And above all, the missing ingredient in all of this, that I I could not let you go out of here without hearing this, is the missing ingredient is Jesus Christ, the real anointed one, the Messiah, the Christos. All God's treasures, says Paul in Colossians, are hidden in Christ Jesus. God will fulfill his purpose for us in Christ Jesus. 
And we should learn to praise him for that. Too often, God continues to work out his purposes for good with the complaints of his people rather than their praises. Chrysostom, ancient, ancient Greek preacher, said this. I love this quote. He says this. This affords us the greatest view of his providence. For the physician, he's talking about Jesus as the ultimate doctor. For the doctor is not only to be commended when he leads forth the patient into gardens and meadows, nor even into baths and pools of water, nor yet when he sets before him a well-furnished table, but when he orders him to remain without food, when he oppresses him with hunger and lays him low with thirst, when he confines him to his bed, making his house a prison, depriving him of the very light and shadowing his room on all sides with curtains, when he cuts and when he cauterizes, And when he brings his bitter medicines, he is equally a physician. Please do not think that God is only your God and Jesus is only worth following when he leads you by the still waters and the green pastures. When he takes you through the valley of the shadow of death, then then he's your God. He's equally a physician. And you go through these verses, and I haven't time to go, but if you do it yourself even. Verse 1, his right hand I take hold of. Jesus takes hold of the hand of his people. I will go before you. Christ is always with his people. I call you by name. Christ calls his people by name. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. Do you know this? There isn't a single nation in the world today where the name of Christ is not being praised. That's an astonishing and wonderful thing. In almost every area of the world, the gospel is growing despite centuries of persecution, despite centuries of abuse, despite all the demons of hell being thrust against Christ and his church and his gospel, God says righteousness and truth and mercy and peace will rain down. Mao Zedong said, when he was informed that 300 million of his own people were going to die from famine. You know what he said? He said, is that all? That's not enough. It is quite astonishing when he tried to destroy the Christian church, how that church continues to grow and develop in China. The rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the gospel is growing. Verse seven, the peace and prosperity. I bring prosperity and create disaster. That is, you know what that is? That's the shalom of Christ where you say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Then you've got peace. You don't just have peace because your circumstances are good. You have peace in the midst of the most distressing circumstances. Verse 13, he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. Sometimes God holds us in suspense. Sometimes God does not answer why something is happening. He doesn't tell us not to cry. He doesn't tell us not to feel pain. He doesn't tell us not to weep. To do so would be entirely wrong. He doesn't tell us that. He just tells us that in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the sorrow and in the midst of the darkness, he is there with us. And he says, I have hands. I am the potter. I know what I am doing. And that's why Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him 
because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, it's a little while, no matter what suffering you are having just now, it is a little while. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear that promise? You as a Christian right now may be going through the kind of darkness that you thought was reserved for the devil. You may be going through the kinds of fears that you can't even express them because to express them, you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 73. You feel that you'd be betraying God and you'd be betraying his people. You're going through the kinds of doubts and, 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 and pains that you think, what? how is this possible? And God says, yes, humble yourself. Remember, you can cast your anxiety because I care for you. Discipline yourselves. Watch out for the devil. Remember, my people are suffering throughout the world. But remember this. It's for a little while. And you have been called to eternal glory. And you will be restored and supported and strengthened and established. That is the difference. When you come and you know and you acknowledge who God is and who Jesus is. Then you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and know that the Lord is your shepherd. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we have from it. We do pray for us here as a fellowship. Pray for anyone who doesn't know you that they would come to know you before the days of evil come. We pray for those who do know you and who are proud and arrogant. Lord, grant a humility that comes from knowing who you are and who we are before you are compelled to make us undergo circumstances which will teach us the hard way. And, O Lord, for those who are in such circumstances and who fear and doubt and who feel overwhelmed as though the waves are going to drown them, as though the fire will destroy them. Help them to see that you are God and there is no other, and that your plans for your people are to prosper. And though for a little while we may have to suffer all kinds of sorrows and persecutions and pains, yet in the grand scheme of things, This is the gold being refined. We bless you for that. We bless you that we are not dross. We bless you that we are not God. We bless you, O Lord, that our times are in your hands and that you are good and that you are loving and that you are merciful. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.